Hi and welcome back to the Campus Founder Podcast, a podcast that explores the journeys of exciting startups founded by students. I'm really excited about the episode we got lined up for you today. Our guest is Francois Aguello, CEO and co-founder of Enzo Connect, the company that leverages smart home devices and AI communication to automate the management of short-term mental properties. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Hi Francois, how are you? Sorry, I'm good, so- thank you. Good, good. Um, so I think the best way to start this off would be for you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to find yeah, yourself absolutely. So, um, as an entrepreneur. Um, I guess how I could introduce myself. So I, I, I studied at the University of Toronto in computer science, cognitive science, as well as a minor in Italian. Uh, it's because they wouldn't let me do a minor in French. Um, and I was very much focused throughout my undergrad studies in potentially building something. So I had joined some hackathons, uh, some different clubs around the university. I built small projects, but I never took any of those projects anywhere, uh, or at least to the same stage that I've taken Enzo Connect. Um, at the end of my undergrad, I decided to start pursuing a master's of entrepreneurship at the University of Cambridge, uh, where I've been essentially doing my studies in parallel with uh, building my venture, Enzo Connect. Uh, and it's been quite an interesting adventure uh, since the beginning, I have to say. Brilliant. And and. One thing I found interesting there you mentioned is that you did loads of hackathons and stuff like that at, at Toronto. Do you think that the opportunity of doing those projects and getting involved in those things sparked your entrepreneurial mindset? Or do you think you had it before you joined any of those hackathons? I, I think I've always had an affinity for um for entrepreneurship in general. Um I've always won I've always, you know, done projects on my own, built prototypes for different things and problems that I've had. So it's always been a key characteristic of uh, who I am. But in terms of formalizing some of the metrics around what entrepreneurship is, hackathons have definitely been helpful um, because, you you know, you're faced with you've got 24, 48 hours to build a prototype. And what I noticed through these hackathons is a lot of people will solve complex problems. But sometimes the importance is to share what your vision is and to solve just enough to get people to con- to be convinced in what you're trying to achieve, you know, because 24, 48 hours, you're not going to solve the entire problem. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it helped really develop what it's like to build a prototype uh, when you first want to start something. And and your master at Cambridge, did that come about because you had the idea for Enzo Connect? So what happened was at the end of my undergrad, my, my last course was CSC 454, which was a business of computer science course, the first sort of business related course that I was taking. And the idea behind that course was to build a prototype around a problem in robotics. And I really did not like robotics, so I focused my efforts on IoT devices, and the professor was fine with that. Um, and we had built a prototype at the end of that semester and had won the $10,000 K, $10, diesel prize, the Department of Computer Science Innovation Lab prize. Um, but when I had applied for Cambridge, I had actually applied with a different idea, an idea that came out of my hackathon. So while Enzo, I was building out this this project for class, I had no idea that this was actually going to be the one that I was going to pursue. I had applied with this legal tech startup uh, or venture that I had started uh, a few years back called InCase. The idea behind it was um, to allow people to know what their rights truly are, especially when it comes to uh, traffic law. So it was an app where you could just, you know, if you get pulled over, speak to the app and know what your rights are. So what can you say? What can you not say? Almost sort of a pocket lawyer, if you will. And I'd applied with that idea, um, but nothing was really formalized. We'd won a few hackathons, won a Microsoft award. There was nothing 
not the same stage of where we're at with Enzo and definitely not the same uh, direction or drive. And when I got accepted into Cambridge, I think a few weeks before getting accepted, um, I'd started because we had won the diesel uh, 10K prize. I decided, well, why don't I put a bit of that money into this project and see how far I can take it? And then, you know, one thing led to another. And next thing you know, we're, we're working on this full time. We're raising money. We're acquiring customers. And it's just, it's just been an adventure ever since. That's amazing. I mean, it, it sounds like an incredibly cool journey. Do you think that Pat, you learned some lessons from the from the legal application that you carried into Enzo then? The, I think the lessons that I learned through that were primarily mm-hmm. around the value of a prototype uh, and the value around uh, understanding what the problem is. Um, we had built a prototype that was really nice, looked really well, like designed, uh, was a bit, you know, didn't work always, let's say. Um, but the key thing here is we were solving a real problem. And I think the reason why we had won these different awards and things like that, with this first legal sort of project um, is because the problem was there. People related to that problem. People realized, hey, I actually have that same issue. You know, I get pulled over by a police officer and I usually say I know my rights, but I actually have no idea what I'm allowed to do, what I, what I should say. Should I say that I was going 110 and 100? Should I just say I don't know what speed I was going at? You know, what 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 should I do? So I think people related to the problem enough that it became convincing. And that sort of same principle got applied into uh, the, the real venture, which is Enzo Connect. But in terms of where I think I got most of my learning, I have to give all credits to uh, the Department of Computer Science Innovation Lab, because this course, which was sponsored or, or uh, tutored by Helen Contazopoulos and Mario Gretsch, um, who at the time were co-directors of this of this course and program, they really set a structure to how do you go from an idea to a prototype to a minimal viable product, um, and they they have you know sort of a twelve step program, if you will, uh, through twelve different assignments for class of building out this eventually this business model canvas and, you know, your value proposition and the whole dossier of like 40 pages on why your idea works and why, you know, it should be funded and so on. So I think it really set the tone and the framework of what it's like to build a business because it's not really, it's not, you have an idea, you build a product and you see what happens. There's a lot of planning and execution behind all of the steps to uh, building out your own venture, you know? No, that sounds like some really valuable learning to have gone through. And I mean, without further ado, mm-hmm. I think we should probably dive into NJ Connect now. So why don't you tell us a bit about NJ Connect and why you were so driven to found it? So traveling was a, a real passion of mine. But on top of that, uh, I really liked smart home devices. Like my entire apartment was connected to smart home devices. And the idea sort of came about with an issue I had when I rented an Airbnb uh, on a random trip to uh, Mont Tremblant to go ski for the first time. And the key was frozen under the doormat. The heating system was impossible to figure out. And, the, and throughout the entire process, the host was not answering uh, any of our questions. A couple of days after checkout, we get a message from him saying we owe him money because the, the, the pipes in the kitchen are frozen because we left one of the windows open. And there's this whole ordeal where I realized, you know, if he had just a simple sensor in his kitchen that would tell him that it's minus 40 in the kitchen, maybe we wouldn't have had this problem. Uh, so the idea sort of spun out of that personal experience, but expanded and became very different as I grew uh, and learned and, and and met new people in the industry. Um, but I'd say that my personal interests for traveling and for technology in general uh, definitely fueled the idea of pursuing this, you know? 
so why don't you tell us about the value proposition of EndoConnect and, and why it's so useful? Yeah, for, absolutely. So essentially the value that we offer is we help yeah. existing property managers lower their operational costs all while maintaining their inventory. And we do that through automation. Um, so we automate the entire step of the booking process from pre-booking to arrival, check-in, check-up, check-out, get, uh, you know, getting the cleaning team, reviewing uh, the profiles and so on. So it's really about how can we make the jobs of the existing property managers as easy and seamless as possible so that there's much less manual labor and they can focus on growing their businesses rather than uh, maintaining, you know, sort of what they currently have. Um, the way we see things is property managers start small and they become big, right? Just like a startup does, they start with a few homes and eventually become large scale property managers with, with hundreds of thousands of units. So we're trying to capture every single step of this property manager's experience. Um, and we do that with three core features, I'd say. So the first, it, it, we don't like to refer ourselves to a property management system anymore. But I think we've, we've refocused our solution to essentially become a communication system for short-term rentals. Um, and by that, it's through our three features. The one is a unified inbox, which is very common across the board of these property management systems, uh, allows you to message across uh, WhatsApp, email, text message, and Airbnb messages. But in order to feed that, what we do that's kind of unique is we have you know, your basic scheduled messages and a chat bot that helps you automate really the entire communication. So scheduled messages being like, okay, when the guest arrives at this time, send out a check-in message. Um, but chatbot being like, you know, if the guest asks anything around the Wi-Fi password, send him the Wi-Fi password. Or, um, you know, if he asks about if the pool's open or any anything like that. And then where we leverage smart home devices is to feed the information, the data that we get from those um, IoT devices into our communication tool so that it serves not just as a, you know, you have these smart locks that are sending you notifications, but they're actually almost communicating in a way with um, your host, or, or sorry, your host and your guest. So you've got a smart noise sensor. It gets triggered at 3 a.m. on a Saturday night. You don't need to wake up because you've got a notification to send out a message to that host. It automatically sends a message for them to calm down a bit and avoid having parties. So once again, it's really about making the lives of existing property managers um, as easy uh, as possible, as seamless as possible. No, that that all, all sounds incredible, and I mean, I'm sure that property managers would be jumping all over there. I sure it hope so. Like they're going to make their, <laughs> their lives a hell of a lot easier. Um, how do you go about connecting all of these devices then to to this application? Because I can imagine that it would be quite tedious to have, yeah, be setting up you know six or seven different smart devices. So. One of the key so things we that we have these is native integrations via API connections with these uh, um, different smart home companies or smart home devices. Uh, now we focus currently purely, we have about 232 devices connected to our platform, but we our, our core focus, the ones that work perfectly, uh, are smart watch and smart sensors in terms of noise and uh, things like that. So two big partners being noise aware and minute. Um, and then smart locks ranging from your keypad smart lock to your Bluetooth smart lock to your, um, what is it called? The, uh, key cafe, which is like a, um, a smart lock box essentially. So those are our core focuses in terms of connections. We're natively integrated with them. We don't offer the devices yet. Uh, so it's not yet really on our timeline of how we're going to package or offer these devices. We're a SaaS, we're not a hardware company. Um, but the way we see it is, you know, if you've already integrated, created an account with that device, if you've already got it set up, the way you set it up with Enzo Connect is you just log in 
uh, with your credentials and we pull that information. So you've got an August account with an August smart lock. You've got the app, you set it up before you did all the steps. Now, all you need to do is go into our application, log in with August and boom, your device is integrated directly into that short-term rental unit. Um, we also pre-populate sort of when it makes sense to lock and unlock the door. You can obviously change that, but we assume that you're going to want to correlate that with check-in and check-out information, you know? Um, sounds pretty logical <laughs> for the time being. Um, so it's, it's mm -hmm. the experience is about making it as seamless as possible. And the same goes with our onboarding to our platform. You know, we're not asking you to create an account, set your home, add pictures, add descriptions and meta tags and whatever. No, you just log in with your Airbnb information and we scrape all of that information and create your account for you. So it's, it's, we want the what we're trying to make sure is that the onboarding of the client, you want to test out our platform and see if it's worth it. Just log in. You don't even have to really create an account. You're just logging in. That's it. Um, and I think that's the, one of the real value adds and something that's very different in this industry is a lot of property management systems have complex onboarding procedures, you know? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's really, really important feature that you've got there, that it's so easy for these people and these property managers to join up and test out your services without having to commit to anything. So what what then would be the pricing model of this business then, if you can talk about that? One of the things that I've noticed is having a fixed price for something is not always uh, the best option. We're actually taking advantage right now of the pandemic to onboard users without a real focus on how much we're pricing it out for them. Because, and, and this this is probably not the best strategy, so I don't recommend this to everyone, but this is a unique thing because of the current pandemic. Usually I would recommend having a very strict uh, pricing model. Ours is, is, you know, we have it. It's around commission model. We're taking about 2% per night per listing. Uh, but we are being very flexible right now because our focus is on let's get users on board. You know, right now they're not, if we're on a commission model, they're not making any money anyways because the booking value of short-term rentals are down because of the pandemic. Not a lot of people are booking anything. So there's no point in trying to collect as much cash as we can from them. The, the, the beauty of what we're trying to do here is purely on making sure that they're happy and that they have all the tools that they need so that once things pick up again, not only can we charge them, but they can actually you know, leverage all of the benefits of the platform and see the real extent of how useful it is. So you know, we do have some deals with different companies where we're charging 1%, 1.5%, things like that. Uh, we are still pre-revenue at this stage. Yeah, because the way I see it is this. If you have a, a product that is so good, people will pay for it. It doesn't matter. You know, whereas if you focus too much on how much are you going to pay me right now um, and less on product, you might have a disaccord in terms of what you've actually done and what you're actually pricing. That's our strategy. Once again, I don't recommend it to every entrepreneur. I think it's very unique to the fact that we're in this global pandemic and that we're taking advantage of you know these these slowdowns to onboard users. And then keep in mind, once we've got a property manager on our platform, the important thing to remember in our, our sort of business model is it's rather difficult for them to move over to a different system. And we haven't made it so that it's like you know ten steps emails, send a text message, confirm type of thing. We're, we're not complicating the steps. We're just saying that because you are going to be so ingrained in the features that we offer, it's going to be hard to find a time, especially when you're getting continuous bookings to say, okay, we're going to stop all these automations and move over to a different system. Because that means for one or two weeks, you're not going to have any automations to communicate. So you better have a really good team to communicate with all of your guests. So we're focusing on onboarding users um, and less so on our pricing model, but it is looking to be around commission models up to two, two to three percent.
Great. And I suppose a question that leads completely on from that is from some research I've done, I found your go-to-market strategies to be incredibly interesting. And one stage that, that I think would be great for you to talk through and perhaps it would be really interesting for future founders to hear about as well is the stages you went through with a particular focus on the product trial. That you, yeah, that you absolutely. So we actually went through, through a non-traditional route of more of a pilot, if you will, uh, with a specific company. So the way we approached this was when we first started off Enzo Connect and built out a prototype, we had sort of found a hack into Airbnb. So the core of what we're building has to be connected to Airbnb uh, in order for us to get booking data, such as check-in times, the name of the guests, their email, their phone number, and things like that. Um, and so we found this little hack, worked around it. It worked. We tested it with a few homes, and then boom, it crashes. Airbnb locks us out of the API key uh, that we had found. So it was a bit of a nightmare there. Um, and I decided, okay, well, let's go to Airbnb and, and chat with them. So I had a few conversations with some of the heads here in Canada and had some talks about, okay, how can we get this partnership going so that we can have access to your API? And the answer was very clear. It was a chicken and egg problem. It was come back with 4,000 homes on your platform and we will integrate with you. But the problem was I couldn't get 4,000 homes without, um, you know, integrating with Airbnb, who would want to integrate with my system with the promise of it working once I have 4,000 of those individuals. It just didn't make sense. Um, so we, we kept grinding and then what happened obviously was COVID in March, which sort of you know stopped a lot of things. We had raised a bit of money, but not too much, um, just enough to keep, keep, uh, keep things going. And then we had some very interesting conversations uh, with a specific client uh, based out of Vancouver and, and the UK. And they were particularly interested in our communication systems and how we were automating the entire process on communication. So what happened was, you know, we struck a deal with them and they invested money in Enzo and we built out a system that would be applied to them, but also to any other property manager, homeowner and so on. And so, so we sort of grew from there. I mean, it was essentially a pilot in the sense that we worked hand in hand with that team. Uh, to figure out exactly how to design the the entire system uh, around their needs, but also the scalable needs of other property managers. And um, so it was more of a, a non-traditional route of a pilot, if you will, you know, where you get a company to almost sponsor you and, and help you build something that's going to be useful for them, but also for others and uh, figuring out what problems they face, how to solve them and so on, rather than just doing interviews by yourself and building a product and hoping that people come and use your product. I think it's, it's been much more interesting to work hand in hand with the customer that way. Um, because there's a lot of little things that we would have not uh, figured out had it not been for this company, you know? Yeah, no, I, I actually think that's some really great advice in there. I mean, it was obviously a very successful pilot for you guys. And, and the fact that you worked hand in hand with those customers to refine your product is, is it sounds brilliant. And I think it's something that, future founders should definitely pay attention to it. So listen, some of the features that you've mentioned are, are incredible and will obviously save a lot of time for both your guests and your hosts. But mm. one feature that I'm particularly interested in is, is this AI powered chatbot. Um, could you perhaps give yes. us a bit of an insight into how you went about developing this chatbot um, from a technical point of view? Now, the key thing about AI powered chatbots to be very aware of is there's a learning curve before you can actually categorize it as being AI. And that's something I'm very uh, honest about. You know, at this stage, our chatbot isn't really intelligent in any way. It's a very categorical model. Uh, we're very well aware of that, but we are developing um, a specific algorithm. I cannot mention exactly which uh, source we're using 
for this, but uh, essentially think of it as an emotional response algorithm that would help uh, make it more um, emotionally aware of the types of clients it's discussing with um, and pushing it further to not just be a system that communicates, but a system that also analyzes communication. What I mean by that is some of the times the people who are messaging are the account managers, other times it's pre-scheduled messages, and other times it's the chatbot itself. And what the chatbot will do is it will understand the flow of communication to know when to speak, when not to speak. And we'll also try to point out correlations between the success rate of existing account managers based on their communication, sort of like Gong, uh, which is a startup. And what I mean by that is think of it this way. If you've got five account managers, one's too talkative, one doesn't speak enough, one's too abrupt, one's perfect, how do you differentiate them? Now, the best way to do it is to just look at their numbers and see how many homes they've closed over the past few months. But you might, you know, you might realize that one of them closes a lot of homes, but the people are usually unhappy and then their reviews are down. And that's because he's an aggressive salesperson um, or, or, you know, whatever the example may be. So looking at the entire flow of communication with that guest to better understand who are your best account managers is also one of the value adds of our chatbot. In terms of the back end and how it's programmed, you know, we use very basic Twilio systems uh, to just have the foundation there. Um, and it's all about training. So at this stage, you know, it, it's only in English. It's on, I'd say much, it's a prototype more than a um, the actual end product for sure. Uh, we have yet to make it multilingual and we have yet to make it truly emotionally responsive um, towards towards guests and, and other members in the, in the pipeline. So. It's a work in progress. Building a chatbot is much harder than people think, uh, especially if you don't want it to be, you know, a press one for this, press two for that. <laughs> um, if you want it to be seamless and so seamless that people don't even realize that they're speaking to a robot, um, then you do need to think about, you know, those different uh, cues that you need to share and, and uh, tying it with the type of responses that you're getting from, from the guest, if that makes sense. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that made complete sense. And it sounds like a, a brilliant feature. Moving on slightly. So so you and your co-founder, Peter, are clearly an example of a successful co-founding team. How did you meet? And do you have any advice for forming a successful co-founding team? Peter and I met because he had joined a fraternity that I was part of uh, throughout my undergrad. We never really, you know, we worked on a few projects together. We'd been friends. We'd worked, you know, gone to parties together, things like that. But we weren't best friends. You know, it's not like we were hanging out all the time together, working on, on, on projects together and so on. Um, but we were friends enough that we could have really interesting conversations, especially on Monday nights when we'd go out to the pub with a few, a few of the guys. We'd have interesting conversations about AI and neural networks and different, different you know, tech-related nerdy subjects, if you will. Um, and when I graduated from U of T and I had built this little Enzo prototype, the rest of the team or the classmates that I had sort of left and got real jobs. So it was important for me to go out and find a co-founder. And I remember interviewing this one person in particular who had an amazing CV. We're talking like, you know, an MBA, a, uh, an undergrad in a top qualified university, a PhD that he was working on in a very specific AI related subject with some insane supervisors at U of T. Just the, you look at the, the profile and you think, wow, this guy is going to succeed, you know, um, but we just didn't click. Like our vision was different, didn't seem to have the right passion in what I was trying to build, um, a bit of a power conflict I could foresee, whereas um, with Peter, everything was smooth, you know, like we 
we talked about it. We built something. We tried it out. We tested. There's really no hiccups along the way. And whenever we would argue or disagree, let's say, about something, it always came down to logic. It always came down to, okay, well, let's break it down into multiple steps and see which one works. And if we couldn't solve it with logic, then we would test both out and we would see which, even if I'm losing a bit of time or a bit of resources, it was always, you know, it's, it's always been about fairness, transparency, and trust, um, which are key, I think, in, in this sort of relationship because your co-founder, whether he is or not your best friend, he will have to become your best friend because you are going to become, you are going to speak to him every single day. You're going to see him every single day or her. Um, so finding the right co-founder is great, but I would say the focus should be on the motivation. The focus should be on the learning capabilities, uh, and not so much on the portfolio, the, 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 the CV and things like that, that people sometimes get diluted by. Uh, if you can find someone that can learn very quickly, you're going to have much more fun than if you can find someone who has a great CV but, you know, once they get started, if there's new challenges, they don't necessarily want to try and learn to, to fix those. And I, I think that's the key thing around Peter. Now, in terms of team, uh, that's been a curve for me. That's been something that I've had to learn over time. Uh, we started off with some friends and students and contractors, if you will, uh, to help us out and build the prototype. And now we're, we're approaching these discussions of hiring, well, not approaching, we, we recently hired someone more senior and, you know, getting getting into the conversations of going from hiring your friends and contractors and, and, you know, students to let's hire someone with 12 plus years experience in, in QA engineering. It's a whole different narrative, you know, and you now need to know what are your, what is your vision? What is your mission? Write it down, have company values, know what you stand for so that you create that sense of a strong culture. And, I've learned that over the past few weeks. I wish I could say, you know, this was part of Enzo the whole time, but it really wasn't. Um, I think a few months ago, we really set down what our values are. And um, and, and it's been extremely fruitful to building, a, a I want to say, a, a world-class team in a way, you know, just brilliant people who are really passionate about the problem that we're solving. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely brilliant advice. And I love the point yeah. that you made about motivation and trust and not just looking at the CV when you're looking for a co-founder. And it sounds like you've had perhaps even a bit of a learning curve yourself in the last few weeks, just, just from going yeah. through the processes of, of growing Enzo in terms of employing somebody and building out your culture. So I think this is all really, really, really useful mm -hmm. stuff. Um, Another thing that I'd actually love to touch on is is the fundraising along the way, because you've obviously come quite far with Ento so far. So I put essentially all of my savings into um, into the business when I first started, which was a huge bet uh, and money that I will not see coming back into my account for quite a bit of time, but a bet that you know got us off the ground. Um, <laughs> from there, we pitched to different competitions and uh, different things, raising a thousand here, ten thousand there, five thousand there, you know, just like these different business competitions and pitch competitions, if you will. Um, and then hit, I think, January of 2020, um, I decided, okay, we should probably look into actually fundraising uh, and raising a pre-seed round. Now, I can't, I can't disclose the amount, unfortunately. Uh, we will disclose it on our, our following round, uh, the full amount and stuff, but for the time being, we're, we're not sharing it. Um, but so I went into to the fundraising, but I, I went into it with <laughs> a lot of naivete, if you will. Like I thought that it was send a pitch deck, have a quick call, get a check, you know, three steps, let's do this. 
Little did I know that it's very different, takes weeks, months, um, and it can be a very frustrating process. Uh, the, the, you know, we raised a first small amount from the Creator Fund based out of the UK, backed by Founders Factory in, uh, in March. I believe March 7th is when we closed that uh, amount. But a few days later, it was COVID. And so all the other sort of committed tickets that we had, they sort of dropped, wanted to wait. And we found ourselves with one investor who had taken a risk um, and, you know, the, we didn't want to be tone deaf having more conversations with new investors, uh, especially when the travel industry just looked so gloomy uh, back in March. Now, what I think was important to note is getting your first investor is the first step, right? But getting someone that is not just someone with money, getting smart money versus dumb money. And this is where I think we excelled at is we didn't necessarily get a lot of money, but we got smart money. We got people who have been helping us along the way, the entire way. Like they've just been so, so helpful. And, you know, big props to Jamie McFarland, the CEO of, of Creator Fund, who's continuously been supportive of the idea, regardless of COVID and uh, helping us sort of figure out what the next steps are, giving us real tangible advice on product development and marketing and so on. So finding smart money versus just your rich uncle who's giving you a, a, a check is extremely important, I think. Um, in fact, yeah, none of, none of my family members have invested in Enzo, <laughs> not because they don't believe in it, um, but you know, it's, it's, I'd much rather have institutionalized investors. Um, and then, you know, our fundraising process, I think was based on it was a learning experience at first. And then eventually it became, there was one tip that uh, one of our advisors uh, mentioned, which is ask an investor for, um, ask an investor for money and you'll get advice, ask an investor for advice and you'll get money. And this, this is applied throughout every single step of the business and not just fundraising. It's also applied to product development and to customer retention and customer acquisition and all sorts of different components. But in the fundraising, since we're discussing that, it was really helpful because it came from a genuine place. It wasn't in March. We knew that we wouldn't be able to raise any money for the next couple of months. So us getting in touch with investors was purely about understanding where they were positioned and how, what they thought about our business and, and things like that, which created these strong relations with different uh, venture capital firms, angel investor groups, or accelerator programs. And eventually um, we closed the rounds in July, uh, I believe, or July or, or August. Um, with another customer who invested, an angel, as well as Founders Factory, um, who are the backers of the Creator Fund and a rather large-scale uh, uh, and insanely helpful accelerator based out of the UK as well. So that, that, that was sort of the process, if you will. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a brilliant um, process of your fundraising. I mean, you've certainly had some some big names on there and, and congratulations to you yeah. for that. You spoke about smart money and it sounds like uh creative mm -hmm. funds certainly were smart money for you do you mind me asking how how yeah. hands-on were they entrepreneurship is about speed it's about who gets there the quickest and the most efficient way possible um what i liked about creator fund at the very beginning is that they had a really a three-week one-month process of of uh putting cash into a business now i'm sure this has changed since their recent fundraise and them having i think they raised about one and a half or two million pounds something like that i forgot the exact number um, and you know, now they have the right to put in much bigger ticket sizes and reinvest into startups and things like that. So I'm sure their process is slightly different than it was before. Um, but I, I really enjoyed 
the speed of communication between their analysts and even Jamie, obviously, um, with the different startups. It was just, there's no time wasted. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is when you get in touch with investors, there's a lot of investors who love having due diligence meetings. They don't actually have the funds in the back to, to put any money in. And so sometimes you find yourself wasting time having conversations with investors that actually don't have any money to invest in you. Um, but you know, I'm not saying these conversations aren't important. It's always good to have these conversations because they obviously have experience in the industries and can share tips. So it's still useful, but, um, I think the transparency was key there in terms of how hands-on, um, creator fund has been, uh, it's, you know, we, we had biweekly calls with them throughout the pandemic. We would, they would connect us with different advisors and different, uh, potential mentors to know what the best steps were. They would help us with our financials to see where we should and shouldn't be spending our money. And what I really respected about the creator fund specifically was they were never forceful on what we needed to do and what we shouldn't do. They never told us do this, don't do this. They suggested. And it's very important to know that, you know, as a founder, you, you control the direction of the business. Investors are here to back you. They're here to back your business. Um, so it's important to maintain that control. You're not at the mercy of, of the people who put money into your business. You still have some control on what you can do. And Creator Fund really respected that, but provided tangible, real advice throughout the process that we obviously took into account uh, in, in many steps. So in terms of hands-on, you know, they're not out there building your product with you, obviously, uh, but they're, they're providing you with all of the tools. And if they don't have the tools, they will go out and find what those tools should be or the people who have them uh, to help you. So, and I think that's, that's the real value of smart money versus having someone who just has money and puts it in. Uh, and even one of our angel investors, he, he's the same thing. He, he got me in touch with one of our board members now, Jeff Haggins, um, got me in touch with another company that might be our next big client. He, you know, they're hands-on, they're out there helping you. Um, maybe not 24 seven, but when they see something, they push it, uh, your way. They're not just passive investors, if you will. No, brilliant. And, and something you touched mm -hmm. on there was the tools that they, they provide you with. So I'm, I'm assuming this is mentors, advisors, that kind of thing. How important do you think mentors and advisors are? Because I suppose they provide yeah. experience without having to employ someone at, at high cost. You want people that are reputable, but you want to know why you need them. Don't be just impressed by the fact that, you know, they're CEO of this or CEO of that. Um, look at what value they actually bring, because there are so many CEOs of this and CEOs of that. You know, um, we onboarded Jeff Haggins as the former CTO of Smart Things, And it was a very strategic reason as to why we did that. He is, you know, you've got Amazon that has Alexa. You've got Google that has Google Home and you've got Samsung that has Smart Things. So he's the co-founder of that company. He has a huge network in the smart home IoT industry, very successful entrepreneur who sold four or five different businesses um, and has an understanding of just not just you know building IoT devices, but fundraising and building a team and, and so on. So he made perfect sense for us because it was a great balance between experience, name, um, and, and just overall kindness <laughs> of the individual, you know, someone who fit the profile of what, who we wanted to be connected with. Um, and nowadays I come across a lot of people with amazing backgrounds and it always seems like, oh, we should add them to our board. We should add this person, but remember, remembering why you have these advisors, what is the purpose of them? So the purpose of them is for them to help you to make, not just to make introductions, um, but to also give you advice on what strategies to take and what not to take. So 
you know, we, we've built a, an amazing board of advisors, I'd say. I'm really happy and proud of the people that we have there, uh, ranging from Jeff Haggins to Daniel Dubois, who's former market manager of Canada for Airbnb and current CEO of Key Living, which has like $2 billion worth of real estate tied to it. Uh, Mark, our lawyer, uh, which has obviously been to offset some of the legal costs, uh, but also it's important to have, I think, you know, conversations around law uh, and around some of the the different things that you do, whether it's GDPR compliance and so on, how you expand into different markets. Um, so that was really useful. Philip uh, Politis, who's the CEO of Odei, uh intelligence company, and been extremely helpful as well in the fundraising. And then Ben, a good friend of mine that I've mentioned before in terms of traveling, um, who worked in different VCs and who's been extremely hands-on and helping me build models and financial models and things like that. So having people that are hands-on that are going to be proactive and send you resources without you having to contact them all the time is number one. And then number two is don't focus just on the name focus on, yeah, just the value that they add, if that makes sense. One thing that, that's become clear is that you're obviously very good at pitching. I mean, from, from the awards and, and the grants that you've won, do you have any advice for future founders yeah. in terms of pitching to so maybe three key things that you yeah, try to do whenever you're pitching? The there's two the way we pitch at Enzo it obviously depends on, on what type of pitch it is. Um, the first step is look at your target audience. What are you pitching for? Is it are you pitching for money? Are you pitching for sharing what your product is? Understand who you're trying to sell and and what you're trying to sell. Um, who you're trying to sell to? Sorry. <laughs> so um, I think that's the first step. And the second step is building a story around that. The very the very first two slides, you want to capture someone. You want to capture the audience. You want them to be uh, looking at, at your slides or looking at you and just captivated by what you're trying to say. So sometimes I see founders pitch and they have all these numbers and this track record and success and, and it's just boring. Like you look at it and you're like, okay, well, you know, okay, cool. So you have a lot of money, you have a lot of customers. I'm, I'm not even interested in what you're really doing because personally, I'm not passionate about the subject. How do you get me to become passionate about the subject? Uh, so our story, we always start off um, with, I mean, it really depends on the pitch, <laughs> but in some cases, one of the stories that we've built is around my personal experience. And we bring that in as sort of the, 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 the thing that will catch your attention or grab your attention. And then we close it off with what the experience would have looked like, or my personal experience would have looked like had Enzo Connect been part of the journey, right? So just uh, opening and closing type of, type of statements. Now, the other thing I would say is structure your thoughts like you structure your PowerPoint, um, so or, or, or vice versa. So when you build that PowerPoint, don't try to include everything. It's sometimes like less is more. You know, they always say that less is more. It's such a cliche thing to say, but it's really true. If you say just enough, you want people to be asking you questions. You don't want to pitch just so that at the end, people are like, okay, great, thank you, goodbye. No, you want them to ask you questions and show interest um, because it also builds sort of a momentum in the room, I feel, when people are asking questions, other people start getting intrigued by um, what your answers are to that. Uh, and so, and my final thing is in terms of the presentation itself, keep it minimal, like keep it minimal in terms of what you have on those slides. Um, ours are usually long, like we'll have 20, 30 slides, but you'll have very little information on the slides because the focus should be on me. It should be on what I'm saying and not what you're reading or seeing. Uh, so if you have overcrowded slides, you know, the one sentence, couple words, a few pictures, 
but don't put paragraphs, don't put numbers everywhere. Keep the colors and fonts and all that like easy to read and make it simple so that they're listening to you and they're not just listening to a presentation. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I suppose this is the, the time in the, in the podcast where we'll just go into a quick fire round. So, so the first one is incredibly cheesy and I apologize for that, but who would you say is your biggest inspiration and, and why? I have a few. Um, and, you know, quick fire. These are always complicated because I, I'm thinking of quite a few names right now. Um, I'd say one of my inspirations is uh, obviously Brian Chesky, <laughs> the CEO of Airbnb. <laughs> and that's because it's one of the most, like, I think it's a very ethical founder that has built um, a venture around something he was truly passionate about. And he's shown that throughout the pandemic, he's found ways to continue to innovate. Um, there's also, I guess, the CEO of Ross Intelligence, which is a firm that closed down recently. Um, and he, uh, you know, they're, they're facing legal uh, battles right now. And um, they've been an inspiration for me to pursue my entrepreneurial career throughout the, throughout my undergrad. It was the reason I started this legal app. Um, he came out of the same program. So it was, yeah, I, I think I, I have quite a few CEOs in mind that I just aspire to become like, if that makes sense, um, just based on their ethics, the way they communicate um, and, you know, their humility as well in terms of their successes that I find really um, interesting and, and really humbling. Great. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. That's brilliant. And which city are you most excited to see NJ Connect operate out of and why? You know, it's not so much about one city as much as it is about the hosts themselves. Um, even if they're in Saskatchewan or, or wherever, I, I don't think it's necessarily that. Well, I think what would make me really happy is to know that people around the world are seeing the value uh, of what we build. And so far, you know, we are focused on Canada and the UK, um, but we are looking to, to get, you know, units in France and in Israel and Spain and just any country, really. Our, our go-to-market strategy is not focused on geographic locations. It's focused on the clients themselves. Um, and so they can be located anywhere and they can have units anywhere. And, uh, but my, I, I would love to one day walk into an Airbnb unit in, in New York and just know that it's Enzo connected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the dream. That's the dream. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much, Francois, for coming on and chatting to us. I think some of the advice that you've given in is, is really, really great advice. Awesome. Yeah. What an episode that was and a huge thank you to Francois for coming on and providing us with some expert advice and great insights into his founding journey. If you get the chance, you can find NJ Connect online at njconnect.com or on Instagram at njconnect. Make sure to subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and it would be hugely helpful if you could rate and review the podcast. Thanks and see you next week.